2: This
3: is a crowd podcast.
1: Something is not sitting right with us. Nobody's here to help us. Nobody's bothered asking us if we're all right. Nobody gives a damn.
4: This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. In this episode, I'll be sharing how this three-decade-long investigation unfolded how I first became involved with it, and how dark forces tried to throw me off course. We'll also hear how the human shields tried to pick up the pieces of their lives after their harrowing ordeal. They may have been home and safe, but the emotional and psychological effects continued. At this point, we should mention we reached out to British Airways with some questions about what we'll be covering in the next few episodes. Their response was brief, so we'll include it now.
3: Our hearts go out to all those caught up in this shocking act of war just over 30 years ago, and who had to endure a truly horrendous experience. The records, released by the government last year, confirmed British Airways was not warned about the invasion.
4: We'll come back to the last part of that statement and the records mentioned a little later on. The human shields were all home by December 1990. Just over a month later, on the 16th of January 1991, an attack squadron of U.S. Apache and Black Hawk helicopters left Saudi Arabia and entered Iraqi airspace. This was the start of Operation Desert Storm. The plan where conquest of Kuwait had begun.
0: Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined.
5: The sirens went off at 20 to 3, and even before that, the big machine guns on the tops of buildings around here were firing tracer into the sky.
4: 13 hours into the Gulf War and the aerial onslaught on strategic targets in Kuwait and Iraq continues.
2: And the Allied commander in the Gulf says six mobile scud missile launchers have been destroyed and five others are under attack.
0: It is a massive encounter and it will not uh, cease until the Iraqis have been completely driven out of Kuwait.
4: The world's media turned its attention to the outbreak of war. The hostages were home. The news cycle moved on. Iraq was bombarded with overwhelming force. It was carnage. Around 3,000 Iraqi tanks were destroyed, 1,500 artillery units wiped out. There was never any proper account of how many Iraqis died. Estimates varied from 20,000 To 150,000. Flight 149, still on the tarmac at Kuwait Airport, was blown up on the runway. Official reports claim this was by the Iraqi army fleeing Kuwait, but more about that later. By the 28th of February, a ceasefire was declared. A bloodied and bruised Saddam Hussein was left in power a decision that would come back to haunt Western governments. In the background, the human shields were trying to adjust to being home. It affected everyone in different ways. Remember Ginny, who had escaped from the hotel with her brother and sister by pretending to be Malaysian?
1: We couldn't believe it, Stephen. We were free.
4: Just a few weeks after returning home, they were at university, trying to concentrate on their studies.
1: I think for us, we were just trying to get back to normal. Mentally, we we all felt that we couldn't focus anymore. We all felt, like, very teary. I was very teary all the time. And that's not me. People were trying to talk to me about it. I just started crying. I said, I don't want to talk about it. Please don't talk to me about it. And part of me was really scared because I'd received a scholarship for my degree at Buckingham University. And that first year, I just couldn't bear being in my room. I hated it. You know, I'd sit in my room and cry thinking that I was actually in Kuwait, stuck in my hotel room. So much so I ended up having to get counselling. And I just said, look, this is what I've been through. And I still don't think people really got it. They didn't really understand what I'd been through. My sister went back to university and just could not cope with it, she stopped. And my brother, he just could not concentrate. And I said to him, you know what, I'm suffering the same thing. I said, I don't know what it is. I've never been like that. I can read a book and I take it in. I'm now reading this 20 times and nothing is going in. And I guess it was the whole thing about something is not sitting right with us. Nobody's here to help us. Nobody's bothered asking us if we're all right. Nobody gives a damn.
4: After getting home, many of the human shields were debriefed by various
5: authorities. Barry Manners was one of those who received a visit. I had a military police come by a couple of days later and was asking what tanks and guns and vehicles I'd seen and where I'd seen them and how many people were there and locations of pillboxes and all that sort of thing. And uh, I probably wasn't very well at that stage, I think. I'd come back a day or so before and um, had gone into into London. I, I, I couldn't really cope with it to be, uh, I don't know why, oh, I, I do know why I'd been, I'd spent four and a half months waiting to be killed and murdered in Iraq but um, just day to day stuff like the simple act of buying a ticket and getting on a train was difficult. Somebody said they felt like they had a goldfish bowl over their head. That was exactly what it felt like, this total detachment from the world and it was a very scary place to be. But, you know, you have to work through it. And I've got my partner coming over and life's got to go on, hasn't it? So then that became my obsession again to um, put that right, which by then was a, a lost cause, I'm afraid. Why a lost cause? Uh, Anthony had gone from being relatively stable is not the right word but relatively insofar as you can be healthy when you've only got a t-cell count of 96 or whatever it was at the time um but you know keeping on top of it managing it uh to being emaciated i mean if anyone looked like they had just come out of a concentration camp he did he was down to 40 odd kilos um he was a skeleton he was obviously very unwell very weak yeah he was a mess
4: Apart from anything else, this terrible business cost you a certain amount of time with him?
5: I can't quantify how long it cost with him. The degree to which it shortened his life be wrong to speculate on, it wouldn't be productive, would it? Um, He might well be here today and it wouldn't do to dwell on the what-ifs because you look back and that's a a dead-end street you know you're never going to resolve that in your own mind so you don't look back and think what if I think if I learned something from the experience was that you just try to do your best with when the cards that you're dealt you just try to make the best of it because the last thing you want is things over which you do have control is to look back and think I could have done that better.
4: When did uh, Anthony die? March the 6th
5: 1992 so 15 months after we got back.
4: In the months that followed their return, the human shields began to search for explanations. Why had they been allowed to land in Kuwait in the first place? The French passengers were the first to start demanding answers. Then others followed. Gregor Schatz, still a teenager at the time, was struggling to make sense of it all.
0: At the very beginning, I remember when I came out, I really thought that it was just bad luck. And I thought I just have to, you know, reconcile with the fact that it was just bad timing. And then bit by bit afterwards, more and more information started coming from different sources and about the planes prior to ours had already been diverted. And then you, well, why didn't ours get diverted? And so, yes, then questions started appearing, but without any really good answers. If it was just a matter of bad luck, like, let's say, if a typhoon takes away your house and you survive and your family survive, you might see it as something really drastic and dramatic and tragic, but you can maybe have a a sort of, okay, that's nature. It just just happened. Yeah, we just got to move on. Pick yourself up. There's no more questioning. But then the thought of like, well, how a lot of things don't make sense. Of course, it doesn't really let you get a closure.
4: The British passengers focused on this statement made in the House of Commons by Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher.
2: The British Airways flight landed, its passengers disembarked, and the crew handed over to the successive crew and the crew then went to their hotels. This all took place before the invasion. The invasion was later.
4: British politician John Prescott began asking questions and demanded an inquiry. The new Prime Minister John Major wrote some carefully worded letters to Prescott, absolving the government of responsibility. Here, some extracts are read for us by an actor. It was clear immediately before the invasion that Iraq was massing troops on its border with Kuwait. But the government
0: had no firm evidence that Saddam Hussein would invade, still less occupy, the whole of Kuwait. The British government did not attempt to influence BA's decision to operate flight BA-149 on the 1st to 2nd August.
4: This response was attacked by Prescott, who said, There were a lot of weasel words in the letter. We have to ask whether the government allowed that plane to land in Kuwait out of sheer incompetence or because they wanted some of the people on board to reach Kuwait. I was working on the news desk of the Independent on Sunday in London at the time. I'd received a tip-off to look into how Flight 149 was allowed to land. I commissioned an article about it. I'll read a bit from it now. Either BA was deliberately kept in ignorance or there was a monumental intelligence failure that led to the unnecessary humiliation and incarceration of British citizens on the flight. Either way, the government has questions to answer. When we wrote that, I had no idea that all these years later, I'd still be telling this story. More after this short break. This is the secret history of Flight 149. In the United States, passengers hired some top law firms. They took video depositions from British Airways staff. British Airways don't ever want you to see those. As a result, BA settled in secret and those passengers got hundreds of thousands of dollars in compensation. The French passengers sued too. There were multiple court cases ending in France's Supreme Court in a crushing victory for the passengers against BA. The court simply said it didn't buy BA's explanation. Here's Ginny Gill.
1: If the Americans can get something and the French can get something, why can't we get something?
4: It's a valid question. So Jenny started speaking with a lawyer.
1: He said, um, we're all confident in this case. So we said, oh, great, OK, let's go for it.
4: After initially being told they had a strong case, things hit the rails when they came up against something called the Warsaw Convention, which regulates liability for international air travel. According to this treaty, any claim must be brought within two years. But by the time Jenny had been able to pursue the case... More than two years had passed.
1: I sat there, thought thought to myself, do you know what frame of mind we were in when we came out? And I guess that's what really angered me. That's what really upset me because I'm thinking, who the hell are you to tell us that we should have brought it within a certain amount of time?
4: It was too late. Jenny was told she would have to move on, and other British cases were also rejected. Another British politician who'd taken up the Flight 149 case was Anne Cloyd. Anne served as chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Human Rights Group and the All-Party Parliamentary Iraq Group. I met Anne several times during my investigation, and so it was really interesting to speak with her again years later. I began by asking if she could remember first hearing about Flight 149.
2: I can, I can remember it uh, very well because we were all so shocked uh, that such a thing would happen. I'm afraid I was uh, suspicious from the start, um, particularly because of Saddam Hussein's intentions. I mean, I raised it in the House of Commons many times, in defence questions, in foreign affairs questions, probably in Prime Minister's questions, whenever I saw an opportunity. I've met uh, several of the people who survived and went through that ordeal. And I held a press conference in the House of Commons with some of the um, passengers on that plane. It was in an attempt to push their case again and to get at the truth, but also to try and get them um, compensation. And one of them beforehand, gave me a written statement and said, if I find I am not able to read out my own experiences because of the emotion I I still feel, I'd like you to read it out for me. And I did read it out and I know that I felt very emotional when I read it because uh, this particular passenger had had a very bad time and had been raped while he was a prisoner. And obviously, you know, those kind of experiences stay with people for a very, very long time and affect their lives even to this day.
4: The government had actually commissioned a report to investigate acts of brutality committed in Iraq and Kuwait during the occupation. It was called Operation Sandcastle, the Royal Military Police took 725 statements and over a 1,000 questionnaires, but it was never released. Anne had questioned the then Defence Secretary, Jeff Hoon, as to why the dossier wasn't made public, and I asked her about this.
2: Well, if you've been in Parliament a long time, as uh, I had been, a lot of questions uh, that were asked in question times didn't get correct answers. I got ambiguous answers, but certainly didn't get straight answers to questions. I was obviously pressing Jeff Hoon to make the report on Operation Sandcastle public. I realised that probably some names would have to be redacted, um, particularly when some of them had to relate the awful experiences they went through. I kept just trying to get answers and asking questions in a different way. When you ask parliamentary questions over a 35-year period, you realise asking a straight question very often doesn't give you the right answer. But if you ask the question in several different ways, you might eventually get the right answer. We're
4: not quite done with Operation Sandcastle just yet. It crops up again towards the end of the story. Meanwhile, for me, after the Independent on Sunday investigation, life had moved on. I'd moved back to my native New Zealand and was making TV documentaries. Then, in 2003, my life changed completely when I fell in love with a British woman, Penny. We developed a long-distance relationship. Eventually, I decided to move back to the UK to be closer to my children and to be with Penny. Penny. I quit my job as a TV producer and arrived in the UK without much of an idea about how I was going to make a living. Somewhere at the back of my mind, I knew there was more to the story of Flight 149. So I began writing a book about it. I had no publishing deal and no money. I'd spent hours on end writing in a freezing house, delving deeper and deeper into the mystery. Finally, I ended up with a book deal. And a contract to make a TV drama about it. During my research via several special forces contacts, I was introduced to a number of people who said they had information about exactly why Flight 149 landed in Kuwait. The Holy Grail would be some sort of official documentation. One contact led to another, then another, over a period of a year. Then one day I received an email with some documents attached. It was exhilarating. You could spend your whole journalistic career and never see original documentation like this. A report of a secret mission. I showed it to an SAS contact. He said it was real. As I cross-referenced the facts, my excitement increased. It all seemed to check out. But one morning I was sitting at my dining table at home, rereading a history of Operation Desert Storm and going through the timeline. Something wasn't quite right. With a sickening feeling, I reread the dates on the documents. They didn't add up. I had the documents re-examined by a number of experts and the consensus was they were written by someone with inside knowledge but who'd made a number of errors, deliberate or otherwise. It seemed to be disinformation. But what was the motive? To discredit me in the investigation? Plain malice? Or some other reason I was unaware of? Later, one of my contacts said it looked like a deliberate attempt to derail my investigation, and as an exercise in disruption, it certainly worked. The book project was shelved, The TV program was buried in a late-night slot, with almost no viewers. I felt completely broken. I was depressed. I planned to jack it all in. The only person I could turn to was my wife, Penny. This isn't something I usually like talking about. But I've been asked about it quite a lot by readers of my book. So I suggested that maybe Penny could have a chat with my producer, Samantha, about how it affected me. Here's Penny.
3: I don't know whether he's going to like me saying this, but he's been in tears over this story. It's really affected him and I've had to buoy him up, definitely. Um, You know, personally and professionally, just by getting angry on his behalf. Because he's beyond anger, I think, now. He's been writing this for 30 years. And what do you think it is about this story that's kept him going, you know, even when it looked like the investigation might fall apart? It's the trauma of it that's never been dealt with. It's just sat there all these years, and I think this will be the never-ending story as more people come forward. Now, of course, the book is out, and there's a podcast too. What would you say Stephen's relationship is with this story now? Still obsessed. <laughs> Still obsessed, Yeah. I mean, this is 30 years. You can't just, yeah, you can't just turn your back.
4: But despite all the personal torment the mystery documents caused, my special forces contacts did lead me to a startling discovery. One of my sources told me something astonishing about a rescue mission in Kuwait. He gave me details that could only have come from someone who was there. The rescue mission involved the USS warship Antietam, and that led me to Larry Eddingfield, who we met in the last episode.
5: First of all, I'm Captain Larry Eddingfield, United States Navy, retired. The ship is USS Antietam, CG-54. It's Aegis cruiser, and with a vertical launch missile system, spy radar, all the latest uh, technology that America and our allies could produce at the time. After leaving his Antietam
4: command, Lowry worked in a senior role at the Pentagon. When I met him he had left the military and become a Reverend. I interviewed him at his church in San Diego back in 2007. Lowry was an unimpeachable source, and he told me he would taken aboard two British Special Forces soldiers rescued from southern Kuwait. How were these two men ended up in Kuwait? Well, they were last-minute passengers on a flight to Kuwait City as the invasion started. That flight? You've guessed it. It was British Airways Flight 149. This was the breakthrough I'd been looking for. The TV drama I mentioned earlier might have been buried in a graveyard slot just before midnight. But there was one person who certainly took notice. Well, first of all, I might not have seen the thing at all because it was late at night on BBC Two and I was actually working on another of my projects in my study and got a call from my wife who'd put the television on and she says, oh, you better come and see this. This is Tony Pace from the British Embassy in Kuwait. In earlier episodes, we've heard how Tony helped to hold the fort at the embassy during the invasion, and how he courageously led a convoy of women and children out of Kuwait. But what you haven't heard is this. Tony Pace worked for MI6, British Intelligence. He was their station chief in Kuwait. Let that sink in for a moment. When Tony was telling us about shredding documents at the embassy, he was talking about classified Secret Service documents With the names of agents. When he told us he feared being taken hostage by the Iraqis at the border, he knew that as an intelligence officer he would be at risk of torture. I first heard of Tony Pace through some court documents, those depositions given by BA staff in the American court case, the ones BA don't want you to ever hear. In those, He was quoted as saying it was safe for Flight 149 to fly to Kuwait that night. As these documents were given under oath, it was a solid source. Except Tony strongly disagreed with what they said, and he was angry about my reporting. Next time on The Secret History of Flight 149, you'll hear why he was so upset. In a way, it was the accepted truth. And I knew it to be totally wrong. The Secret History of Flight 149 is a crowd network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound designers by Phil Brown. This series is based on my book, Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. To get episodes without adverts, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. Other ad free podcasts on the Crowd Stories channel include American Vigilante, about a controversial renegade crime fighter, KC, and Murder in House 2 the inside story of one of the biggest cover-ups in U.S. military history. Thanks for listening.
2: Crowd Network. A place where
1: you belong.